Welcome to Staying at Home episode number two. Hello, Gottfried. Hello. Hi. I would like to introduce you to the audience. You are currently the team principal and owner of GRT Racing and are from Austria. What else is important to know about you? How did you become a team principal of uh, one of the most exciting racing teams? Uh, Simon, first of all, thank you to be here. It's a pleasure and uh, a wonderful thing, honestly, in the present time, what we have here, uh, sitting at home, doing not much at the moment uh, that we can make this podcast. It's a real uh, pleasure and honor for me. Yeah, what's important to know about my person? Uh, racing was always my life. I was coming from an area in Austria that is around, my house is five minutes away from the former Österreich Ring or Red Bull Ring, let's say like this. And so racing was there always a, a topic. A good friend of my father, it's Walter Penker, had a racing school on the Österreich Ring and a small karting track there. So when I was 11, 12 years, I was doing already some karting in this period. Was doing then not so much motorsport till I was 18, 19 and started then again with karting in the Austrian Championship, going up to Formula 3, Formula 3000 and up till to the Fiat GT series. But racing I had to stop in 2001 in case of the last crisis, what we know from 9-11. The further progress was uh, my father had uh, two car shops here in this area with a Mazda dealership, but I was... Uh, I would not say forced, but he wanted me to have to do his business on. I did this for some years and, and it's gone back then in 2013 when I started to buy and build um, small race cars and sell them again. So this came a little bit a hobby from a technical side where I came then more or less later to a Viper GT3. And with this Viper GT3, we did two guest starts 10 years ago in the Adak Masters and was not successful, had always problems. And I started with a Lamborghini then in 2013, where we coming then um, to a very, very good championship in 2014, where we were vice champion in the Fiat GT series and had then the luck and pleasure to be elected from the manufacturer to become a factory team and go on with the Huracan since 2050. So for the people that are not as familiar with racing as uh, we are, what is a factory team and how do they separate from private teams? Um, in my position, it was quite different. When we were racing in 2014, um, we had in this period of time, there was the Galado from Writer Engineering, what we had. We had a small Iveco bus. We had three, four people. We had the trailer. The catering was, uh, you can decide between a toast with cheese or a toast with ham and cheese. So that was the maximum we had to offer. So it was for us a quite big jump to become a factory team. Honestly, from my uh, side, it was that way that I received a call from George Asana, our head of motorsport from Lamborghini. And he called me and said I should come to him in the factory to Bologna. He's seen the results and... Um, please give me a budget to do it. So you can imagine it was a really 
big step or a hard step for us from becoming a very small, tiny team to a factory team. A factory team, basically, the, the main difference is uh, in 2015, it was a real factory team because everything was paid by the manufacturer. Let's say that's the big difference. Uh, in racing, it's also GT-free racing. In the actual situation, there is no real factory team. Let's say all teams are factory supported. We had the luck in 2015 to be a factory team as we did run the only two prototypes of the Huracan GT-free. And that's why it was a pure factory program where we come to a factory supported team then from 2016 onwards. But the biggest difference is where's the money coming from and for a factory team for sure the factory pays your job you said it's racing was always part of your life what is your first racing memory what was the moment that you can remember that uh, you realized you need more of this it was 1994 it was the start of the austrian grand prix on the österreich ring And I, I was sitting on a bee, you know, and the bee uh, stuck in my in my leg, you know. And this was presently before the start of the race, and I did not cry in case of the pain from the bee bite, but I, I cried, you know, because I didn't start, uh, didn't see the start of the Formula One race in '84, and there I was six years. So uh, this is the first remember I have to racing. Why did you start with racing as a as a team owner or? as a team principal because the risks financially are very high the logistics and the responsibility is is also on a very high level what is that still against all odds got you started um basically from from racing i have uh, I, i see it from both sides i see it from this first side as a team principal now and i've seen it from my professional career till 2001 so i know more or less a little bit about driver side and team side One thing is on racing fascinating uh, next to the cars, everything, you know, the magic of the, of everything, what we, what we know about racing, but there is an additional thing, what I like the most. And this is for sure. Um, the difference that when it's Sunday afternoon, you have a paper with uh, some information on it. And this information shows you how good you are. And I think there are quite less jobs in the world where you get the result really like presented like it is on racing. So that is for, for me the most fascinating thing about racing. Let's dive dive deeper in in your progression in your career what is the advice that you would have loved to give to young Gottfried that you wish you knew when things got serious for you uh, this is this is difficult to say I think um, honestly um, would not do a lot of things different what I did till now you know so so the advice is for sure something first of all, When you go for racing and you get addicted like I am or my team is to, to racing, uh, you have to be about one thing clear. Um, think if you are the person to do it, you know, because this job is nothing what is quite normal compared to other jobs. This job is for sure something where you spend all your time, your spare time, day and night only for this goal, what you want to achieve. And I think the only thing is what you can give to someone is 
really be sure that you have no private life. You will go on in this uh, racing business till the hardest ends and it will be your whole life. You know, I think this is the biggest uh, difference when you think about racing jobs and the normal job. To the economics of racing, how much does it cost for one car to run for one season? in any any championship uh, this is a, a quite quite open question it's um honestly in racing you have uh, big differences uh, between the races and with costs you know you have uh, races what we did for example like uh, daytona 24 hour race with the preparation and everything it's a race what costs around only one race six seven hundred thousand euros Till down when you go to smaller racing, it's not small, it's GT Masters in Germany where you have to calculate per race around 50,000 euros. You know, so it's a, it's a bit variant what you have to do in your calculation, what depends for sure how many people you're running, uh, which championship, which entry fees, how much tires are needed, what is the mileage, what you're doing with the car and what is the surrounding, what you have to provide. Because for example, uh, when you race in America, you need everything double. You need your own workshop, your own trucks, your own tools and everything. So the only thing what is the same is more or less the crew. So it's um, from, the, from the costs itself, uh, let's say it's quite easy. It's an official number, what you have to calculate. It's around 15 euros per kilometer for a car. What is in the first moment, not much, but then uh, all the surroundings what coming on top, you know, from hotel costs, people costs, uh, tires, fuel, everything. This makes then the final price for a race. How many championships are you or did you plan, uh, I rather say, to race in 2020? with how many cars? Um, 2020 is for us the, the goal. We, we made a decision at the end of the last year. First of all, uh, we have understood we cannot do anything. Because personally, for me, I want to race every weekend. But you have also employees what have families and everyone uh, what is quite hard to manage when you're too, on too much race weekends. So we made a decision, unfortunately, not to go to GT World Championship or GT World Challenge and again, our former Blomberg Series. And we focus on IMSA Series and ARAC Championship this year. The reason was quite easy. First, uh, for the IMSA, there was, uh, from my personal interest, a very high one. First, we had a big success there. And I love the way of doing like the Americans are doing motorsports. It's so different to Europe. And I love the style, how they're doing. And the second uh, thing with the ARAC championship is quite clear. We did not make the title. We have been only vice champion. So we want the title and go again to fight for the championship there. So the decision was then quite clear for us that we focus on ARAC GT Masters and the IMSA series in America. This is very interesting since here in Europe, national championships like the GT Masters in Germany are very popular. And the FIA WAC is, uh, I think, the big one worldwide, but has super high popularity in Europe. Where's the difference between racing in Europe and racing in the United States from your perspective? And what uh, made you decide for IMSA over, let's say, other big championships? Um, two things for IMSA. First of all, IMSA is one of the 
best organized championships I have ever seen. I must say honestly, it's so well organized with so nice people and everything. It's a really you come there and you're not a foreign people what appears now. So you're you're really like in a family from the first moment. It's liked very much on the IMSA organization. The next thing. America speak. It's really crazy how everything works compared to us in Europe. You, you have to plan when you send to some races on the West Coast or something, you have to send your truck six days before the load-in. So this is a quite big difference, first of all. And what I like in America is um, the style of the tracks. When you look at Daytona, Sebring, Watkins Glen, these are really proper racetracks, you know. They are not so, let's say, typically F1 standard, what we are having here. So if you make a mistake, you have a runoff, nothing happens, you know. In America, it's really rough, you know. There are really walls there, everything, everyone has to be focused. And honestly, I see a big difference. Um, this was I also like is the cost of the repair of the car. We have less accidents in America than here in Europe for the other championship, for example, because the tracks are so dangerous. So also I think the drivers are thinking more, what is a good point of view. And there's another thing what is what I really like on IMSA racing is the organization of the BOP. Honestly, I've never seen an organization what is working so effective and correct on the balance of performance on the cars, like IMSA is doing. If they're, um, they have an own team what are working there with a logger system, what is, I think, the complex logger I've ever seen in a GT3 car. Plus, they have also the infrastructure to do engine dyno tests, to make aero tests and everything on a real proper way. And this results in a real good way of structure of the balance of performance. And this is something what you always like because balance of a performance is something what has a big influence in our competition. BOP has the goal to make sure the fastest cars are not too far away from the slower cars and that it's interesting to watch unlike in formula one but a lot of times fans see that bop is just like a random machine giving out penalties or advantage <laughs> uh, advances to to certain teams and drivers but i i didn't know that they actually have a dyno and like physical uh, testing capabilities to really look into the actual effects and this whole topic about sandbagging which means driving slower and qualifying so you not get as penalized does not make as much sense in maybe some other series yeah that's that's correct i, I didn't i was was quite involved in the bob process in the last two years it seems it's really impressive they put every engine of every manufacturer on a dyno they test all the different sizes of restrictor what has really the difference of torque horsepower and everything so they know an accurate number so it's um, so it's i think that makes a big difference also in the bob situation um, for example i think um, on other championships it's more a little bit like you said before sometimes results affected that could be true i would like to jump back really quick to the topic of economics of racing just for me to understand better you know how to run a racing team because maybe i have some change left and i can purchase a huracan gt3 oh, uh, how does that <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> um how does the racing team 
make money. Like we see a lot of colorful stickers on the car and on the racing suits. Factory team gets uh, financial support by by the factories, of course. But seeing the cars go up in flames sometimes, uh, a tire exploding or something, it's not the expenses that you have with your personal car when something uh, breaks. How do you survive that? Uh, my opinion about this question is a very good question. My opinion about this question is... Um, when you make money with a race team, you, I'm sure you make no results anymore. So every, every euro I earned with the race team, I immediately put it in again. We buy better stuff, tools, everything. You invest immediately, you know. So it's a really, really hard way to say with a race team you can man make money. You know, it, it's a job for sure. It's, it's enough that you live about it, but uh, it's for sure something what you should not do when you want to come rich. Because I know that there are some race teams they have a different, let's say, thinking about everything that they do. Um, let's say proper gentleman cars with a lot of budget and everything, you know, but these are always teams what you never see in front. So uh, there are only two ways to go. So you can make some money and, and run somewhere in the back of the field with some good funded gentleman drivers, or you want to go for racing to win races like we are doing. And then honestly, you don't make any money anymore. I, I remember when I was um, photographing in the Adak GT Masters in 2012-2013 for a Audi team there. There was a massive crash uh, where the car flipped over seven or eight times. Is it true that race cars cost, like GT3 race cars cost, north of half a million euro uh depends what you buy honestly because um, on gt3 uh, what i know uh, i think audi is the cheapest car with 369 euros don't do me wrong if i'm have not the correct number in head and it goes up to an aston martin was this close to a million so it's a it's a huge difference uh, what the costs of the cars are there i can tell you only the thing is with these crashes and everything, we do a lot of races. So honestly, in our calculation, there is at least to lose one car per season. This is the minimum what you have to calculate uh, because you will always have a crash. We had it, for example, on the first test day in um, Daytona that year, you know, where we lost already the number 11 first time, you know. So it can happen for sure once a, a season or maybe twice a season, you know. But if it happens three times or four times, I know some teams what I have this also, then it gets for sure to a financial problem also for the teams. Does, who has to pay for this? Like, let's say I'm crashing in a, in a race, the car, does the car that bumped into your car pay for it? Is there an insurance? Does the team cover the expensive? First, first of all, um, when you run a race car, you put your helmet on, you have to take the risk that you pay everything, independent of what is happening. So it's not... Uh, God bless. Uh, otherwise, I think the courts here in Europe will have a lot of jobs if there is has something to be cleared. Whose driver's fault was it? Because we know from race control that there is no driver who says that was my fault. So it was always on crashes. There is the situation that you pay for your own damage. How it's structured for the team side, it's 
totally different, honestly. I think every team works uh, somehow like us with insurance, but there's still, uh, you hear sometimes teams are charging the people like mad monies for, for crashes. They're offering cheap seats to get the drivers in the team. But if a driver makes a scratch to the car, he gets immediately his 5,000 euro bill. I already heard about this kind of working as a team already. We work there different. Honestly, our drivers pay nothing when they crash. So this is a team risk, what we are doing. And honestly, I calculated it in the last three years. It's a way of doing first, you have a good relation with all your clients and drivers. That's for sure. And then the second thing is, uh, it's something what you have to put in your calculation that you can cover these costs is a part of racing. Very, very interesting because no matter how much you like or dislike a competing team that races against your own champion, you always hurt when you see all of this carbon fiber flying everywhere or just the classic, uh, I have a puncture situation. <laughs> what, what happens to you? Like, let's say you're leading the race or competing for the podium and you see something Uh, something happening to one of your cars, how do you keep your emotions in check in a moment like this? Or do you get emotional at all when you see that? I'm, I'm the type of guy, you know, when you don't see any of emotion anymore, then it's critical with me. <laughs> so uh, a lot of people are telling me this, you know, because um, first of all, you have to know which risk you're doing with racing. So it's a part of your risk. So I can't do anything. If I see that you are beheaded, for example, um, I think it was the Daytona 2017, where we're leading the race with nearly one lap in front. And uh, then the car, um, let's say, had a fail or crashed or something in this situation. Then I get emotional about the result, but never on the car. That's the only difference. You know, the car is a risk, what you have to see as normal. I, I, I like when I hear many say, like you, Simon, for example, that uh, you see the carbon and this, hurt, this hurts really, you know. But it's, it's like, what, how should I say, you know, um, a, a doctor must, or he has to have the ability to see blood, you know, and we have to see um, the crash carbon, you know, I see that. Oh, way. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's just our job. Yeah. The differences between sprint and endurance racing, ADAC GT Masters is a sprint race, no longer than an hour usually. And IMSA, Daytona, Spa 24 hours, uh, as the name says, they're endurance races. Like, what's the difference in the preparation except like stocking up on, up on tires and probably energy drinks for your team? But is there any different strategy how to approach the whole thing? Or is with endurance racing just a 24-hour long sprint race? Um, first of all, um, I see both... Both ways of racing have um, a very, very interesting sense, let's say. First of all, the sprint racing, like it's in Adak or something, it's very nice and very, let's say, interesting for the public. That's why you have in the Adak Championship such big crowds, you know. I think for um, also motorsport enthusiasts, it's getting quite boring sometimes to look uh, to watch this endurance racing but from the teams it's completely the opposite side 
because I like personally also from the team members, we like endurance racing so much more because you have much more impact as a team. On the other race, it's clear. You have your two drivers. They must be the fastest. They must have luck in the first corner and push the hell to get the car to the finish line. But in an endurance race, from the driver's side, it's nearly the same. Also, it, there's no endurance race when you look at Spa um, or, or in Daytona when they are after 24 hours, there are six, six, seven, ten cars in one lap. This is crazy. So in two minutes, there are still uh, six, seven competitors. And this makes now the point where the team comes because the team has a big influence, first of strategy side and second on the pit stops. And so I think this endurance racing is making a team much more a team and everyone has more his impact in the result. And I think um, that is the very nice point of endurance racing. One of my favorite things to see besides all the on-track action and the battles and the drama is to see the mechanics falling asleep and making fun of each other during 3 a.m. late hours of the night. Is it a challenge to keep the moral up of the team? Because I always have the impression racing mechanics are so much a different kind of mechanic than what you see in your uh, next door car dealership from how much they commit to that job. But I'm sure at some point after crushing it on the third weekend and after basically one day without sleep because mechanics get up very early in the morning 15 hours before the race starts uh, let's say what can a team principal do to keep everyone on their a-game and if it's just the last pit stop 10 minutes before the race ends very simple just select the right people <laughs> racing mechanics like you say it's very interesting and um For example, in my team, when we have the big races with around 35 employees, I know only from two mechanics that they have been a base learned mechanic from a real car shop. So it's, it's a complete different kind of personality from a race mechanic. First of all, what I said already in, in the beginning, you know, they must be really crazy and and really focused that they do what they are doing and they must really love what they are doing otherwise it's not possible i think like you said it's for race mechanics sometimes days with 15 hours 18 hours or then go to a 24-hour race they're for sure up more than 40 hours um, this is something what you don't do anymore honestly for money this is something what you do only for passion and enthusiasm from this side so the race mechanic is a total different kind of employee to everything other what you can imagine and What I like, um, like I said now in the beginning, just select the right people. You must find these crazy people. And you must really um, have the team together that it's a real team, that you have, let's say, a family feeling inside there. Then honestly, from the team principal side, when you have these good people, what we have in our team, it's not so much to do. Because you really see um, it's sometimes crazy when you, when you have um 24-hour race in Spa and they have a small incident with a bumper or fender what is bent, you know. Or when you see other races where you have a bigger repair for two, three hours, you see the people 
bringing the car into the box and working like crazy. Honestly, the race is gone for them when you have something to exchange in a 24-hour race what takes more than two minutes, you never can win the race. This is a big thing. But still, when they have uh, to, to manage that the car goes back on track and even if the repair is taking three hours, there's no one standing around. They work like hell and push like hard to get the car immediately on the track. Let's say... A race mechanic is a very, very different species of, 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 of a person, you know, compared to any other job and they really must love what they are doing. I'm totally fascinated by how, you know, international racing is even in a national championship. I, I can't think of a single single racing series that has just people from one nation or from one, one region. Is there sometimes culturally a challenge to, let's say, manage drivers that have just different environments? Or like, how do you work out certain social differences with a driver or competing competing teams has ever been a situation like this or is it everyone is so used to this whole international scale of racing that it uh, goes as smooth as saying hello to your neighbor next door uh, honestly i never had this situation you know in racing i think everyone who's going inside this business knows what they're doing and and what is coming to them, you know. We had more problems with French drivers who don't speak English and we don't speak French, for example, <laughs> on this point of view. We had more problems when I remember the last years than on, on every other thing. But I think uh, everyone is known and is familiar to this, what they are doing. So right now you're at home. We are not meeting at the Nürburgring or at the Red Bull Ring. We are not surrounded by tires and smells of burnt oil. How did the current situation impact you as an individual and as a racing team? Honestly, very hard. Um, first of all, when a race team or everyone in racing or in sport has no event, we have a big problem. And the thing is, um, we are not the company like others. Maybe they can produce something in this time or something. For us, it's a real stop. It's like... Like you press on a movie, the stop button, it's, it's completely the same how we feel now, you know. Um, this is the first side. It's a very bad situation uh, because you can't do anything about it. You only can do what the government is telling you. And it's a pity, honestly, uh, because it has, in my opinion, a little bit a bad impact for the future at the moment. When was the moment where you realized, uh, wow, we are not going to race for anytime soon like people pushing the dates back to fall but no one knows if if that's gonna happen what went through your head when you realized the season launch is not gonna happen as as you planned honestly um, i realized it i can tell you i was sitting in a hotel in florida watching tv and seeing the trump speech on the 12th of march where trump said uh, no europeans are anymore uh, possible to fly into america this was the situation i grabbed my laptop i booked the flights for my guys tickets home we flown on the next day from florida home to austria and already in that moment i realized that there is something big coming to us um I was really talking immediately to all my employees that there is no other chance that we have to stop the working agreements with a guarantee that we can restart right away. 
From the car side, so from the technical side, everything is prepared. We weren't right from the beginning, right uh, three days before we travel down to Sebring for the next race. So the cars are ready. And um, that is really, really, uh, for me, it was right in the first moment when I hear that some president of some country is not allowing to come in people from another country, then for me, it was clear what is coming. Because racing is such an international sport, as yeah. we talked earlier about, and mm -hmm. there is no way to say, all right, let's just do this with our American employees mm -hmm. and uh, they cover for, for the ones back home in, in Austria. Yeah, correct. What is your thoughts on, you know, let's say all races of this year are happening, let's say starting September or October. Do you think besides that everyone is happy to see that again, but is it logistically and from a human resources point of view even achievable? So and so. It depends for sure, first of For when can we restart? Um, everyone is talking about June at the moment, but let's say I expect more July. Um, then we have a big problem. We have only, let's say, from July till November. It's five months what you have to accomplish with all the championships. And the next problem is every one of the championships at the moment is telling you we want to do all races. So it's a quite easy mathematics. We have only 20 weekends to bring in all races. So this will be, I think, the biggest problem and the biggest challenge for all championships uh, that it's possible to do all these races within this short period of time. The next thing is we have um, racing in America, racing in Europe. So you lose also time on traveling and we will expect a lot of clashes. So from our point of view at the moment yes it's possible to do everything for sure we have to make for sure and plan a new structure in the team so that we split for example the team that one crew stay in america one crew stay in europe for the for the european races um But I see a small or let's say a, a bigger, and it's not so small, this problem, a bigger problem coming. We did in the previous years um, a lot of races and we had sometimes five, six races back to back. So the people were six weeks on one spot working every day, 24 hours only for the race team and then pushing there and have no spare time. After the fourth and fifth weekend, you see that the mood of the team is going down because it's normal. They, they spend more time with your, like you have a lovely girlfriend, they spend more time with the lovely mechanic next to him in the room. And so it's, it's a really uh, tough challenge already after five weeks. So my doubts are in that matter. When we have five months now coming, we will race every weekend more or less. So Is the mood and the morale from the people, is it good enough to survive these times? And I think this will be the biggest challenge what is coming to all for, to us in racing at the moment. Do you think one solution could possibly, quote, just hire more mechanics? Would you be even able to find them or would it work uh, inside of the team with people coming in and out because it needs to run like a Swiss watch? It needs to be a well-oiled machine. Is, is that even a possibility to say, all right, we just have like two teams for each series that uh, 
can be exchanged or is that not a possibility? We have um, the good situation, honestly, that we can, I already thought about this, uh, that we can manage, for example, when we have in America, not the big ones, like uh, six hours of Glen or that six, 10, 12 hour races, uh, the standard races, there are six events in America with two and a half hour distance. This is okay for us uh, with our team that we have one crew managing this and the other crew is on the same dates doing the other races here in Germany. So um, there we have enough people. You're completely right for the big ones. When we make the splits, we need to hire some people. And honestly, it's so tough to get the good people, you know, because there are a lot of people wanting to be a race mechanic, you know, uh, there are a lot of people are skilled for this, but what you need, you need on the race mechanics, then two things. First, they need to be skilled. And second, they need to be team player because exactly what's happening then in that period of time, when you spend so many days with each other, when you have their one guy inside, you know, who has his own thoughts about everything. He can destroy your team or he can destroy the mood of a team, you know. So this is, I think, a quite tough challenge than to hire the right people at that moment. Yeah, it's very easy to find the wrong people. That's probably That's the true. easiest in, <laughs> in, in recruiting yeah. in general. What are you doing these days uh, since you're not traveling anymore? What is maybe something positive that you discovered that you're now able to spend more time at home and with the family? I'm really, really skilled in cleaning windows. This I found out. So I make my homework. I clean my windows at home. I wash my stuff myself. I think I did not do this since three or four years. Quite interesting when you have to call your mother or friends, how is this working? How you do this? How many degrees you need to wash this? You know? So, so it's a completely different task at home. Honestly, um, the first week was not, not a big deal because you have anyway so much to do with the government company and everything to everything shut, shut down. But, um, now it's for sure a time coming where it's getting a little bit boring, let's say, because homework is done. I have a bigger garden. It's a little bit too cold to start there. So um, there's now one thing uh, what is coming up and getting more and more popular, and this is this eSports. Eh? And um, at the moment, I'm shopping my parts to build the home simulator. So. There's a new project coming. Do you think e-racing um, or sim racing, as, as it's called, is something that will get the same audiences or is the sim racing audience different from the people you meet on track? Never ever. It's only, let's say, I, I never believe that it getting, it's getting close to something on track because you, you said some nice words before, you know, you need to smell the petrol, the tires and everything. And this is never what sim racing can give you. I think it's something what people are watching at the moment just because there is no other motorsport. So, but it's a, it's a very, nice thing it's uh, something what is funny but for me it's not a pure sport for sure not and it will never be something what will exchange our sport in real do you think it's a generational thing that you know the the people that grew up with watching michael schumacher or senna and you name any one of these legends that these people have a closer 
connection to racing in the real world and the younger generation that grew up with playing simulators, playing video games, that it maybe is for them almost the same thing as it is for us with racing on, on the track? It's not for me. It's um, for me, it's not the base there to compare these two things, because give you an example, jump in a GT3 car. Try our rouge flat with a GT3 in real and try it with the sim. You will see the difference. So, so these, these two topics are so far off. It's, let's say it's something similar. Honestly, um, also positive about simulators and everything. You know, they're getting really quite close to real, but, um, there's one big thing missing inside, you know, um, what happens in the car when you really fly off in a rouge? Would you do this in a real one? What they're trying there on the simulator? So I, so I think it's, it's, it's so, so two different things, honestly, uh, that it's really hard to compare. And this is nothing for me like generation things. In my generation, we did not have simulators. It's the difference. Everyone is practicing in simulators at home from at least all active drivers that I'm aware of. Do you think because of the chance to train in a virtual space to get to know the racetracks a little bit more, drivers have changed? Have they gotten better? Or do you see any change in how real drivers or real racers that compete on the track approach a race? I'm pretty, pretty sure it helps a lot of drivers to learn tracks, but to learn them that way that they know after the next left, there's a right, for example. Um, I think more you really don't learn about it with a simulator. About drivers, uh, yeah, there are two, there are a lot of different drivers and, and, and I think, um, I worked, I think with one of the best drivers for me personally, when it looked like that's Mirko Bordolotti. I never will forget when we come 2017 first time to Sebring. Mirko was never driving in Sebring. He watched some onboards in YouTube channel. That's it. And after lap four, he was four tenths slower than the qualifying pole position. So do you really need simulators or is it more talent? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I would would love to have this same topic talked with some of the active drivers to get their take on. I think really the consequences that could happen to a driver or to, to uh, anyone that is racing in the real world. We very recently have also seen drivers making the ultimate sacrifice for their dream what happens like to you when you see someone putting out a lap that is so fast where you where you know all right this is the limits of the car when you push it at 100 percent, this is how a lap time should, should look like and someone is beating it do you worry sometimes about your drivers when they put out really really amazing lap times or is there always this confidence that everything will be fine so and so because for sure in gt3 there's sometimes happening like you said sandbagging or stuff like this honestly i was never a fan about it you know so far i like it more that the drivers are really squeezing out the car to the maximum what is possible so um, it's it's a good question and and at the end um, you have to say with the drivers it, it's depending for sure a lot on their skills and we know that the drivers are a big variant also in the results of everything so um But uh, honestly, I prefer it more when the driver really push like maximum and show every time what the car is to, able to do. What's, what's your favorite race 
in like it's a new year you look in the calendar you enter all of your races into it which one is the one you are most excited about and why <laughs> i could say the donor for sure it's, it's something special but um my favorite race is still spa first of all it's such a big challenge We had never success in Spa. We tried it every year, two cars, three cars. We were leading every year this race and Spa beat us every year. So it's a real disaster. So for me, it's, that's why anyway Spa, because first of all, it's the track, it's the weather, it's the amount of cars, because one thing is in Spa really special. And I think a lot of people forgetting this. There are really 60 same cars, you know, in all the other races, what is endurance, Nürburgring, Daytona, it's all class cars, you know. So at the end, there is 20 competitors you're fighting, but in Spa, there are 70. Um, it's for sure for me, one of my biggest favorites. And it's so challenging, this race. You cannot imagine it's such a tough race. And, and uh, that's why it's for sure that race. What is the more challenging in, in a spa race than let's say uh, i haven't checked uh, i didn't do my homework have you competed in the nürburgring 24 hours no, before never, never in the nürburgring 24 never um for me it's still spa because um like is the competition is so extreme in spa spa is a really um, when you look at the qualifyings you know you put 20 cars in four tents we are not talking about the norris ring But the whole DDM is inside yeah. in four tents. We are talking uh, 20 cars in Spa Francorchamps. So you see how all manufacturers, all the people and all the drivers, they are so pushed on the limit. And, you know, um, when you have endurance race, we you know, for example, let's say a good example is always pit stop. When in a pit stop something goes wrong, you know, for example, you lose a wheel nut or something, you see this. Um, in an endurance race, okay, put the new wheel nut, put the, the wheel on, go out with the car. Okay, we lost five seconds. Hey, in Spa, five seconds killing you in 24 hours. And this is for me the much challenging part, com Spa race compared to all the others 24s. So it's uh, every second, every tenth of a second is counting that you have success there. Will we soon see Lamborghini competing in Le Mans? Hmm. Good question. There was a GD project planned. Unfortunately, it doesn't got the green flag. So the engine was already there. The car was in the computer already. It was really a pity that it is not coming. Where I see, honestly, a little bit the future for a lot of manufacture is LMDH. I think this concept what is based on the DPI in America is something what has for me a future in racing between ACO, FIA, GT3, everyone bringing a lot of interest of manufacturers together in one class because it's a race car what the manufacturer can build for normal costs. And I think this is a big interest at the moment for manufacturer, especially in that time what is coming now, because you can be sure that the manufacturers will not in future invest the hundreds of million in motorsport anymore, especially with the crisis what we are getting now. So I think LMDH could be something what is maybe interesting also for Lamborghini, a small brand like Lamborghini, because it's an affordable way to go. So from our side, for sure, we are pushing to get a car like this. And when we get something, then the way to Le Mans is also open. 
but this is far and future. Why do you think for the what was planned for 2021 in the WEC, is it so difficult to get this hypercar class together? Right now we have Glickenhaus and Toyota, if, if I'm not completely wrong. Aston Martin has withdrawn the Valkyrie project uh, due to some... I, I guess uh, it has been paused due to some economical factors they're uh, challenged with. But why do you think if it's so attractive, the idea which everything is more attractive than just one brand competing against its own sister car, but why why is it still so difficult to have a lineup as we see in G GTE or GT3 at the moment? Um, it's For me, it's quite, I think, easy to answer. It's only about the money. It's all about money. And, and what is uh, the difference between a hypercar or, let's say, or a GTE compared to this LMDH? It's the biggest difference is that the base car is for all the same. And this makes the huge difference on costs. And additionally, it's also planned to do it with a BOP. So honestly, that class would be the first one what is similar to GT3. And uh, you see that everyone is, is is pushing in GT3 from the manufacturer side like mad because on, you can make two things. You can make on one side a pro team and on the other side customer teams. And this makes it attractive again for a manufacturer to get it refinanced. And honestly, every manufacturer wants to win. Yes, he can. He has his pro option what he can do there. And on the other side, every manufacturer has the possibility to get money back. Okay, we produce customer cars. And this will never this is never possible in in a hypercar concept or LMP1 or something from that side. So for me it's quite clear it's only a question about the euros or dollars and it's quite easy to answer that uh, the manufacturers don't want to invest anymore at that high level of numbers for that category and if someone has the money he goes to f1 that's it let's say you had the money and you had the resources to start a formula one team you get a credit card with no limit uh, to do that would you compete in formula one or do you say thank you i prefer gt cars i would make a very nice press conference a car release least then you come to the first Grand Prix let's say it's in Australia the pit will open the pit goes up you see a video wall with me winking with my hand from an island with the dollars in my pocket you know more I wouldn't do in Formula 1 I think um, it's a good question but um, I'm not a fan of Formula 1 because uh, it's something what is only related on money And, and even if you make the best job, you know, when you're not in the team with the most money, you can't do anything. So, so for me, this is honestly not really sport anymore. What is happening there? You know, I've seen in the last days a very nice documentary about Formula One drivers also where they analyzed in an university in UK, the best Formula One drivers. And honestly, you see, The older the time, the better or the harder it was for drivers because more teams were able to win races. Now it's only two teams. So when you're not in these four seats, you never can win a race. And for me, honestly, it's the sport. It probably is sport, but if it's the most interesting what racing has to offer, uh, people need to answer for themselves. Yeah. 
It's a <laughs> good, yeah, it's a good thing. Uh, if I see just from the sporting side, you know, not for the yeah, economical yeah. thing, not from advertising, yeah. uh, not you, you can make honestly for a sponsor. It's nice. You look, look how many people are watching it. Look how many hours on TV and, and everything is, is perfect. You know, that's why Formula One is there, you know, still, uh, but not from the sporting side. So for me, it's, it's really something I don't want to be there. And, um, mm-hmm. I'm not personally the tip. I'm more the technical guy and not the manager guy. So for me, Formula One is anyway, nothing what I want to be. Yeah. If you could have any, any driver from racing history in your team, who would be most interesting for you to, to work with? No, just bring me Mirko back. That's it. <laughs> uh, I would say only Mirko, but a lot. Honestly, um, if this driver want to work, you know, when you ask me the question like this, if it should be um, a question, who would be there? I would be really interested. You know, it's a pure fictive. You know, to have if it would have been possible um, in the, in that period of time. Also, was also Group C racing when you look in the past and everything. And you always see in the Group C racing that the good Formula One drivers they were also driving in Group C in front. So I think it would be fantastic in fictive things to see to have a Schumacher or a Senna in a GD car compared to the best ones we have. So this would be interesting to see. But it's um, just thinking about some things. Yeah. What is your favorite era in racing? Uh, absolutely, 60s, 70s. 60s, 70s, it was crazy, crazy, extreme dangerous, that's clear. But it was that area of racing where you could achieve a big result with a good idea and not only with money. And that's why the 60s, 70s were the pure racing and for also from the technical side, you know, all, when you think about the small thing, like a gurney of a wing, you know, it was all developed in that period of time, you know, the, the first wing cars are appearing and everything. So um, I think that would be my dream, you know, to be in that period of time. Fantastic. Uh, I, I'm sure not everyone um, that's listening to this is, uh, you know, racing is a part of their lives. But which race, let's say we choose one in Europe and uh, one in the United States, which race should pop the cherry? Which one should be the first one a person should ever see to really get an understanding why motorsports racing um, is so addictive. Um, quite simple answer: twenty-four hours of Daytona in America and the twenty-four hours of Spa Francorchamps here in Europe. I think when you see these two races, when you, first of all you have also the possibility of that race to go really close to a pit lane to see the paddock, what the people are doing, how much they work, how much they sweat to achieve or anything. So I think um, when you come to racing, watch one of these two races and you really, you really see the spirit of racing. Fantastic. Thank you so much for this conversation and thank you for your, your honesty and transparency to talk all about, you know, how this whole lockdown situation has, has affected you and, you know, the impact on all of that what is the one advice you would like to have for people to keep their spirits up while staying at home and what's what's the thing you do maybe to to motivate yourself that you can hand out as a, a advice um the only advice i can give is really to follow uh, what the governments are telling you so it, the base is to stay at home you know i think everyone should be so clever because 
we will never race and we cannot race without that we are healthy. And I think this is the first uh, mission we have to compete now. And I'm pretty sure if we're doing the everything right, uh, racing will come back. And um, to get a little bit, um, let's say, time wasted, it's not a waste of time, I would recommend to everyone, just jump to YouTube. Uh, there are so many races, honestly, on YouTube and everything, what you can see there. Uh, look some Formula One races from the 80s, you know, 90s, or sports car racing of the famous races. It's a very nice uh, time to spend time, and it, it brings you back uh, to this, what we love, to motorsports. And I wish for sure there for everyone the best and uh, the most important, as I said, stay at home and we will survive it for sure. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I hope we meet on the racetrack very soon and we can see a lot of racing uh, drama and carbon and fiber flying through the air very soon. <laughs> That's right. Thank you, Simon. Stay safe and stay healthy. See you soon. Thank you. You too.